Today, I, I have a three-part sermon that really is three weeks of, it's three sermons, and this morning I worked an hour and a half just trimming a ton of stuff away. Um, I could be, I haven't experienced this in a long time. I could barely, I've never been slain in the spirit, um, and I don't doubt that God can do it. It's just never happened to me, but I, there is an anointing in this room. I, I could hardly stand. There is such a real, tangible, palpable sense of God's presence here, and it's 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 overwhelming. And as and I, part of it, I asked the Lord. I I'm, I wasn't dehydrating. I was I, I had a lot of water and I ate something this morning. And it, it's what God is. This crisis that we're in, just the whole. Everything is happening. God's word speaks clearly to where we are. And, and what I feel as the conduit is super, it's not for me, it's supernatural. And I, there's a, it's not a nervous energy as much as it is a, an expectancy of, oh, and y'all's hearts have been so open. You know, it's like when I'm hungry, Candace won't let me stop by the grocery store for her. It is a real problem for us. We've, we've seen counselors to help us through this, you know. When I go, I, it's triple digits. It's $100 if I have to stop by and get milk and I'm hungry. And um, you can't help it, you know. It's a fact. If you are hungry, you're going to spend more m money than if you were not. And here, there is an incredible reality. When God's people come hungry... It almost doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm, I walk in integrity, humility, and honesty. Your hunger makes the preacher preach more effectively. So if I preach poorly today, it's your fault is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, the last couple of weeks, we have... Um, we're building, and I, I didn't intend, this, this whole thought just disrupted my series that I started on the kingdom. And we talked, if you weren't here two weeks ago, and I know a lot of you weren't, the series, the, the first sermon was on liminality. Liminal is an interesting word, and it's, it's when you're stuck between here and there. You're neither here nor there, and a liminal season, you can't stay where you are or you'll die. And it, it requires that you embrace courage, that you embrace risk, that you get engaged and prepare for the journey because you're on a journey in a liminal season. And we come to understand not only are we in a liminal season, we don't know what's, what the new normal is going to look like. We just know there is a massive shift going on around the world. We're in a liminal season. Liminal seasons are, they agitate you. There's discomfort and inconvenience. And we're all feeling it. And this wasn't two weeks or six weeks. We're now coming up on a year here eventually. They've been talking about this situation. And it's not just COVID that we're dealing with. It's the political climate. It's the unveiling and the exposure of a lot more evil than any of us thought would be exposed 11 months ago. And it's, it is, in the natural, it's overwhelming. 
We're in a liminal season. And if what I said three weeks ago, the Christian, the biblical Christian, is always in a liminal season because we're neither here, we're, not, we're in the world, but not of it. And we're not there. Although we've been seated in heavenly places, we live as believers in a liminal state that requires we embrace courage, embrace risk, understand we're on a journey, and that there's agitation, discomfort, and inconvenience. Last week, we talked about when people commit to making it through the liminal season, the nature of pre-existing relationships gets transformed. And we move from being on the journey, the same journey, we move into a what we call communitas. And I won't re-preach it, but I would, if you didn't hear it, I would advise you to listen to last week. Because I believe it's really what God's doing. And this comes from the Ndimbu tribe in, South Af in Southern Africa. And Dr. Victor Turner, Turner coined these two phrases. And communitas, listen to me, is when you're navigating a, a challenging season together and it forces what, what he uses the term, listen, mystical togetherness. And you don't, you're not just in the same community. You experience communitas. It's what soldiers experience in a foxhole. It's what teammates who survive fourth quarter comebacks, two or three games in the playoffs. Mystical togetherness is a beautiful thing, and many people have never... And when we look in the book of Acts, we see that communitas, which is not cheesy, superficial, half in, half out community. And the, the biblical word of fellowship, of, you know, hey, God bless you. Good to see you. How you doing? And we don't, we don't mean any of it. Communitas is when we're in a season of discomfort, inconvenience. We're on mission and we've embraced the courage, the risk that it requires. And we're all in this together. And then we experience whew, communitas. And then as I shared last week, and I want to I talk about what brings about what we said. There was a word that kept jumping out, if you remember when I read from the book of Acts. And, and a ton of those scriptures, and you see it, I forget how many times, but it's more than ten. You see the word, depending on what translation, in the NIV, you see the word astonished. They were astonished. And as a result, it talked about what the onlookers, people who were not part of the church, one, one of the places it says, they were astonished at what they saw and people came running to the temple. And oh man, I, I think, no, listen, God is getting ready to do, he is doing it now in the church, the remnant church. There is a deep, we're going to make it, we're on, we're, we're going to hold the line, we're in this together, we're going to see the hand of God, and communitas is bringing about a, a sacrificial, we can walk through this inconvenience, this discomfort, because we're in this together, and God is, is getting ready to astonish the world through what he's going to do in the church. Trust me. So, um, communitas, I want to say, 
this is so needed in the church. When I came back years ago, and I won't bore you with the whole story, but one of the first things we did was we realized nobody lived within 15 or 20 minutes of the church, and we, we don't really have community like we wanted it. I mean, there were, there were deep relationships, believe me, people who were committed, but as new people were coming, you know, and I did something old school, and I'm old school, and I think new school is kind of ineffective, if you know what I mean. Old school stuff, we need to, re, we need to bring some of that back. And so we were like, we're going to do Wednesday nights, and we're going to do a meal on Wednesday nights. We're going to eat together. And you, uh, some of my friends can't believe, you know, Wednesday nights around here look like Sunday mornings. There's a lot of people that come. And we don't do that just to make it convenient, although, although it is. We do that intentionally so that we would break bread together, that we would share life. And I pray that, that, that you get to meet new people. And we're committed to doing our best to providing quality food. But it's, mo it's about more than the convenience. It's about communitas. Um, we do Wednesday night studies. We break them down, a lot of different options, so people can get connected. Um, because we value deep, listen to me, we value deep, transformative relationships among each other. Now, as I speak about communitas, just for, and I'm going to get into this week, but listen, there's so much God is saying to us. When I speak about communitas, I want to ask you something. Are you paying attention to what's happening? I mean, in the spirit realm, and in, in, are, are you aware of what's really going on? In two weeks, our country is unrecognizable and it's picking up steam. So the need for you to be closely connected with other mature, strong believers is, is it's probably greater than it's ever been in your life and I'm not sure everybody realizes it. You need mystical togetherness with the body of Christ. Now, with what our, listen to me, with what our children are facing, and will face in the years to come, it is imperative that you and they experience Christian communitas. I've been in North Atlanta since 1989. It's busy. This is a very transient culture. Just go to a Braves game when the Mets are in town. The Mets have more fans than the, than the Braves do. Nobody's from here. Therefore, we, not many people have roots here. And that's a problem. And so the need for our children and, and for us to be intentional, effective parents focused on, committed to the discipleship, the Raising and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, our children, is great. Please don't overlook it. Please don't be neutral. It's critical. Um, I'm so thankful for the history and the legacy of this church in, in children's ministry and student ministry. I was at the women's deal yesterday, which was so delightful, and I was looking at some of the, peop the women that were here, and, I was, and, and it dawned on me. There's six or seven couples, it may even be more now, adults here who are raising their children where the husband and wife met each other in this youth group. How cool is that? And how many of you would rather your children meet their mate in youth group than in Buckhead? 
and it's not even close, you know. And, and just, just thinking about that. And your kids may not be at that age, but I'll tell you, before you turn around twice and pay your insurance bill three times, your kids will be getting ready to get married. And, you, and it's the most, outside of their commitment to Christ, it's the most important decision they'll make, who they marry. And um, I'm all for arranged marriages. There were two cute girls here last week I was talking to and their parents, and they seemed really, really decent. And I said, just so you know, we have two boys left at home and we believe in arranged marriages. <laughs> Did I not say that? And I pray, and he arranges them. Seriously. If he doesn't, I get involved. And I help him unarrange a few things that look to be arranged. I'm serious, and my girls will tell you, I, I've preached about that. It's really important that, and I cannot say enough, and we, I meet with Pastor Ben weekly, coaching him. We want our student ministry to be anointed. We want kids to be transformed. We want them to have encounters with God. It's a big deal. You should be more committed to your kid being plugged in to the communitas of the church than their all-star batting pitching lessons or their cheerleading camps and traveling all over the world. I'm not against it. I, we raised some talented athletes, but we never put those sports above their commitment to their faith. And I advise you and beg you, please, you will thank me later and so will they. Now, one last thing about Communitas. I have this um, prayer album and in it, it has, we're behind, but I've, I've even got some I, I've got to put in there. They're in there, but not, I got to put them in alphabet. Like Mark and Stephanie Rainier and or Renee, it depends on where you're from. And I'm not from Paris, so I just say Rainier growing up in Virginia. Mark, Stephanie, A.J. Fletcher, and little Noel. And I pray, I pray for these people. Call people out by name. It helps me. The Bible says in John 10 that sh sheep know their shepherd's voice and shepherds know and are able to call their sheep by name. And I want to encourage you. I, I have a conviction. I don't, I, we don't hawk and stalk and go on your Facebook when you start coming here and we get your picture. I, I told everybody that you, all you have to do is get me a picture of your family and the names and I'll pray for them. But I'm, if you don't do it, you either don't believe in my prayers or you don't believe in the power of prayer or you're lazy. <laughs> and you can send them to jennifer at restorationchurch.faith. Just send a picture and give us their names and she'll do the rest. And so if you don't send your picture, no prayer for you, okay? <laughs> Is that fair enough? You gotta put some skin in the game. All right, how many of you are glad to be involved in a communitas that is alive? <laughs> Amen? It's exciting to come to church. Years ago, I told people, what God's going to do here is going to make you plan your vacation between Monday and Saturday. People laughed at me, and some of y'all do it. You ones that are saved all the way, you do that. You come back to church. Am I right, Shine, Mark? People do it. It's beautiful. Now, 
Let's talk about this week. Liminal, communitas, and now astonished. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I want you to notice the two words. You will receive power. Power to be my witnesses. Power is not something we have plenty of in the American church, and we need it. Jesus said that you will have power. Why do we need power, Pastor Chuck? Because we don't have the power to pray when someone's sick and believe that God will heal them. We don't have power to pray that someone can be set free from addictions. We don't even have power to believe that God still transforms people. Not in this church, I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm talking about the American church. Jesus said, you will receive power to be my witnesses. And that word there, think about this. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's about to leave the whole ministry enterprise in the hands of some disciples that six weeks earlier, they, they couldn't even stand in the face of persecution and they denied they even knew Jesus and Jesus is leaving the whole enterprise the whole kingdom in their hands that's why I said don't leave Jerusalem until you have received the gift my father has promised and that will be power to be my witnesses the word wit for witnesses in the Greek is martus or martis or marturion depending on what um version of or the tense of that and it, it actually is the same word that we get the word martyr from and Jesus is saying knowing what they're about to face and he had told them if they persecuted me and the prophets they're going to persecute you and Jesus says you're going to have a power to stand up even in the face of life threatening persecution and you know hear me sometimes God, let me say it this way. God speaks the language you understand best. They had heard him say these things, but they didn't get it. Didn't. And God does it. You hear sermons that I preach that, that you can't receive or even fully understand until you get there where you need it. And God will remind you things he said. What language does God speak? The one you understand best, which is that. Not English he speaks circumstances. And he puts you in situations that make your ears open up so you can hear what he has been trying to tell you. And, I, and the American church and all of us, we're in, a situ, we're in some circumstances that are causing us to read the Bible with a new level of hunger and insight. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. Everybody say cross. They must take it up daily and follow me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, he says, and the one who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Let's talk about the cross just for a second. The cross how did the cross become the most common piece of jewelry ever? It, it, it happened because the one who split time in two was crucified on one. The most central event in all of history, Jesus being crucified. 
But it was not a piece of jewelry or endearing the thought of the cross. And when the disciples heard him, unless you take up your cross daily, that just didn't ring like, this is my best life now. That didn't sit well with the flesh. And so we see in the old hymn, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. The second verse opens up and says, to the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach I'll gladly bear. You see, to become a disciple, they had to take up their cross daily, and they still do. They still do. But we have a problem. We've eliminated the cross in the American church. In the 90s, American church architecture and interior design, we begin to see everywhere churches that didn't have a cross anywhere. And we begin to see the sermons on the blood, the power of the blood of Jesus kind of disappear. And you may look around and go, where's the cross here? And it used to be behind that screen. And we, we deduced that if we're going to put those screens there and take that cross down, then on those screens, every chance we get, let's put a cross. And this pastor didn't refrain from talking about the cost of discipleship and the cross. But what a shame that architecture says, let's take the cross out of the church. And let's not talk about gory things like the blood so much. We've eliminated it. Now we have a crossless Christianity, which is an oxymoron. The cross and the message of the cross is, is a paradox. Luke 9, 24, right after the verse I just read, says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And it makes, it, the disciples had to have it. Say what? experience together going, what's he talking about? What is a paradox? You know what a paradox is. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained proves to be well-founded and true. Now, in the paradoxes, in the scripture, there's, there's more than I can list today. They're all over the place. A, a, a phrase that you go, that can't be true. That's like the opposite of truth. And then when you dig down and you experience, you go, wow, not only is that true, that's like profoundly true. Galatians says, if you, be, if you want to truly be alive, you must die. Luke 17, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. And whoever loses life, loses his life, actually saves it. If you want to be wise, 1 Corinthians says, you must become a fool in order to be wise. Matthew 23, if you want to be promoted, exalted, you must become humble. Matthew 20, if you want to be first, you got to be last. 1 Corinthians, when you are weak, you are actually strong. God doesn't look at things like we do. 
We don't see things the way they really are. Isaiah 55, God, the prophet says this, that God says that his ways are not our ways. How many of you can say, I know that's right. And then he goes on, he says, my ways are higher than your ways. And then he goes, as if you don't get it, as the heavens are higher than the earth. That's the delta between his ways and our ways. And so it stands to reason that if there is a God in heaven, he looks at things significantly different from us. And so when, when we hear things like the way up is actually the way down. It's called downward mobility in the kingdom. And that's the way you really get promoted in the kingdom. If I try to save my life, I lose it. The way to get things is to give things. When the pandemic hit, you may remember the first six weeks, we told every family in the church, we're going to give you, we, we're, I preached a sermon called Contagious. And we're like, we're going to give everybody a $100 bill in the church. And we want you to take, as the Holy Spirit leads you, you give it to somebody. And when they say, why are you doing this? Tell them, my pastor told me to. So that they'll go, where do you go to church? Why did your pastor tell us to just, we want to spread the love of God. You remember, we gave away thousands of dollars. We had a missionary, Coleman Bailey, who 61 orphanages came and we were like, we're going to raise him money. We didn't know what was going to happen to us. And in the face of that pandemic, when we were like, uh-oh, put everything on hold, we began to give things away. And this church is more than two times the size now that it was then. I'm preaching, I, I'm preaching stuff I live and I believe. Why? Because I have discovered they are true. Every paradox from Scripture is true. My brother-in-law who preached here just a few weeks ago, and I, just, I bring this up because now many of you know Bruce and Rhonda and their story. Big three-story house out in Stone Mountain. Five little girls. I think Cassie was in like fifth grade. And they take that church on 14th Street before everything got cleaned up on that side of the tech campus. And they begin ministering. God began to send people, literally prostitutes and um, pimps. Literally got saved on Sunday morning. Literally. This isn't preacher talk. This really happened. And, and God spoke to my sister and said, she called Bruce one day and said, you know what? God's clearly calling us down there. And if we're going to minister in the city, we can't live in Stone Mountain. And they moved in a 65-year-old building that was not meant for anybody. They had to put some plumbing, come up. They washed those girls in a little number two um, wash tub. And somehow, some donor, I think that's how it happened, that got them into the high school school. I don't know if you know. That, that's a classic school down in Buckhead Midtown. And it, the, the husband and wife taught there for like, I don't know, decades, a long time, even into their elderly years. And it was a bunch of sophisticates. It was really a great educational Christian environment. And, my, and they would invite their friends to come over. My brother-in-law, Bruce, is so crafty. 
He, he, so all these wealthy kids from Buckhead would go, yeah, I'll come play at your house. And then they would get there and realize, uh-oh, this isn't a house. This is a church. Uh-oh, we're not in Buckhead anymore. We're on the west side. Uh-oh. And then their parents would come pick them up. You've heard Bruce, some of y'all have heard Bruce tell these stories. And they would feel sorry for them. And Bruce, so gifted, fundraising, they would go, how can we help? I'm glad you asked. But the, the whole thing was, everybody that knew them were like, these poor little girls, grew up. they couldn't play outside. They had to play in the church. We had Thanksgiving meal down there a number of years. And you go, what are y'all doing? You can't raise your kids in the city like this. The first three years, they were broken into 37 times. It got Bruce to, at one point, he said, you know, there was a guy who in the middle of the night just threw a rock through the window, and he was literally in his tidy whities with a baseball bat, said, I've had enough. I've come to minister to him, but in this, in, in this situation, I'm going to lay my hands on him and pray for him. And he took a bat with him, chasing the guy down the street. And if you saw it back then, you would go, man. What a mission. And if you saw those five girls now, you would say, we should have never felt sorry for them. It's our poor kids stuck in the suburbs with an iPad and a smartphone that's making them dumb. And you see those serving in that ministry now. What am I saying? The world is upside down. If you want to live, if you really want the abundant life, Jesus would say, not then die. He would say, then you must die. And you may be hearing me, because I know the tone of North Atlanta, and I know the American church, and you may be hearing me going, wow, this is our first Sunday. And uh, wow, y'all bring it. Yes, we do. You've been brainwashed. You've been spiritually mind-engineered to think if you want to get, you have to save. If you want to live, then take care of yourself. No. If you want to live like the abundant life, like live like my brother-in-law and sister and those four, five little girls who are now spiritual rocks, you've got to take up a cross. Deny yourself and watch you then go, honey, we are living. The abundant life is, you're talking about mystical. So few people know what the abundant life is. The, Paul, Paul the apostle knew what it was. That's why in Galatians he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Oh, poor Paul. And I no longer live. Poor Paul. But hear these words, Christ lives in me. What? What? Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body or in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who lives in me, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
the exchanged life we used to call it. I, I, I give up living in my own efforts and strength and I receive Christ. And when I really receive him, he comes in. He, listen to me. He, he, the DNA of God Almighty is doing what I'm doing right now. If I let my flesh have its way, I wouldn't be doing this. We'd be doing something else. And I wouldn't be alive. Come hell or high water, no matter, I don't know where this world's going. Any preacher who says they do, think, I don't. But I know this, I'm alive. And nobody, how are you alive, Pastor Chuck? We're all, no, I'm alive because I have died. And no one can take my life. I've already died. And now he lives in me. <sighs> Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11, when we were on the road, we, we traveled all over and it was a weird deal, but kids would want my autograph. And when you touch people, and my kids would see other kids lined up to get my autograph, which is a weird deal. But when you touch a kid's life, they want, they want to touch yours and they want to connect with you. And when we were on the road, I always signed Philippians. I would sign my name and then Philippians 3.10. Where Paul says this, oh, brothers and sisters, please hear me. He says, that I may know him. Let's just stop right there. Do you know the Lord or do you know about him? Do you know the Lord or do you know about church stuff or conservative stuff? Paul says, what he said earlier, all these things, this life, I can, it's rubbish. It's crap compared to knowing him. He says, that I may know him, get ready, and the power of his resurrection. That I might share, in some translations say, listen to this. You talk about oxymoron, paradox. The fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Paul's saying, I want to know Christ. And I know, not only do I want to know, I want to know the power of Romans 8, 11. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in me. I want to know him. And I want to taste the power of the resurrection. And I know that in order to do that, I've got to line up for the fellowship of identifying with him when I suffer for him. That I might in that, oh, that I might in that suffering become like him. That I might experience not only when I die, but now the power, the revelation knowledge of Resurrection. I, I, you know, I, I have to finish today. Somehow, God help me. But listen, you go, what does that even mean? You know what that means? When your husband's been caught in his third affair and you are saying, it's over. Because that's what he deserves. You can divorce him. And I wouldn't blame you, scripturally or otherwise. 
But that divorce doesn't take your life. You have resurrection power in you that goes, Father, forgive him. Truly, he doesn't know what he's doing. Men are that dense. They think with, pardon me, with the wrong head. And you can rise up over that, or you can, maybe there's resurrection power that redeems that. We don't know resurrection power like we should. I, I, I must move on. You know what I'm calling you to do this morning, Restoration Church? I'm calling you to do more than show up on Sundays and pay your tithes. If that's all church is to you, you've missed it. And the guy who or the gal who's been serving as your pastor, they've missed it. Senate chaplain, longtime Senate chaplain Dick Halverson said this. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ, the relationship. They knew Christ and the power of his resurrection. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America where it became an enterprise. And y'all are victims of that. Pastors building their crowds and their following. Churches building their budget and adding services. And you've been discipled in a business opportunity. Dietrich, you need to know that. And consumerism and entitlement is the antithesis. And it set you up to go, I, I ain't into no cross. I love Jesus and I vote conservative and I'm going to raise my family. We're going to be there, but the cross... And our consume, the religion of consumerism and entitlement, and now the religion of racism. We're putting things ahead of the gospel. The desire to be relevant for pastors to grow their enterprise. We've watered down this glorious gospel. And as a result, we have no power to witness because we are not making disciples by the book. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor, wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to me. In Germany, in 1937, the theologian, martyr, was asked later, six years later, 1943, how it was possible for the church, please hear me, brothers and sisters, how was it possible for the church to sit back and let Hitler seize absolute power? His firm answer was, it was the teaching of cheap grace. He went on to say, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. We're in the 1937 era. I, I told you we're not gonna hype it and capitalize on what's happening, but we would be foolish to ignore what is happening. 
This, this generation needs a Dietrich Bonhoeffer to say, if you're going to be a believer, Jesus would say to you, count the cost. And know this, in Matthew 13, he said, the kingdom of God is like a man who discovered a treasure in a field. And that man went and, listen, sold everything he has gladly so he could go back and purchase that field. Jesus, the next verse said, in case you don't understand that, another jeweler found a fine pearl, wanted that pearl and sold everything, gladly sold everything he had so he could purchase that pearl. We live in a time and culture that not only teaches cheap grace, but praises it. I can't eliminate the cross. We can't be a biblical church without the teaching of taking up your cross daily. We can't, listen to me, we can't open up the side door of relevancy to people in to cheap grace and call that the Christian faith. Pastors have changed things. We've changed things. Like, um, I, I was playing in a golf event where I went to school at Lee University back in October. And because my golf game is where it is, I'm like, I have to at least look good, you know. And I went over to PGA Superstore, and I, I was going to buy a golf shirt. And I put on a, when I was in college, I was an extra large. And I put on a large, and it swallowed me up. And I was like, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to need a medium. And I put on the medium, and it swallowed me up. I was like, no way I'm a small, but let me try it. I put on a small adult shirt, and it was not tight-fitting, like, you know, medium, like some guys wear their, their some guys, some men wear their son's eight-year-old T-shirt to show his biceps, you know. It wasn't that. It was small. I'm like, small? Candace is a small, she's a girl. I thought that's bad enough. And then these uh, restoration jackets come in for Christmas for the, all the volunteers. And I'm like, somebody asked me, I said, I'm either a medium or a large. I tried large, it swallowed me. I put on a medium, I'm like, I don't like. I put on a small and it fit. I'm 55 years old, a man. What man wears a small? I'll tell you one. I'll tell you which kind of man. The kind of man that grows up in a world going, no, you're not that big. Here, let's just give you an extra large and call it a medium. No, you're not that bad. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That small ain't no small. They've just switched the labels. We're in a time, brothers and sisters, where we are being forced to see reality and it's going to be the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. <clears throat> we, but we must return to the gospel, the loving, life-giving message of the gospel the cause that caused us to die in order to live. I'm praying for our children, I have for decades,
for your children and for you as a church that we, listen to me, that we will have encounters with him, not just weekend services. We're not gonna add another service to add another service. We must have encounters. You might know the difference between going to church and having an encounter with God. How many of you don't wanna just go to church? You want an encounter, come on somebody. We want an encounter with him. We need an encounter, a liminal season like the one that is upon us. We need to be drawn together in communitas where we share in the fellowship of his sufferings in, in order to fully understand the power of the resurrection. I said this last week, but let me re remind you. Communitas is not us hiding away in self-preservation. Jesus said, may, may they be in the world, but not of the world. It's easy to be in the world. It, it's easy to not be of the world and in the world. It's hard to be in the world on mission, liminal, embracing courage, risk, and still not be part of the world. So our communitas is not, uh-oh, let's, let's all let our children marry each other. Let's don't, no. We're the city on a hill. We're, a, we're the salt and light of this world that needs it so desperately. Now, coming to a close in the next little bit, 45 minutes or so. The new t I, want, I refer to the history of Christianity a lot of times, and people don't, don't understand. Do you know in the year 100 A.D., um, there were 25,000 Christians in the Roman Empire of 40 million people. Don't forget that term, 40 million people. They also believed that there was, give or take a 1,000, 25,000 martyrs at that time. When you trace the history of the early church, 200 years later, in a Roman Empire of 40 million people, the 25,000 are 20 million. How did that happen? You know how it happened? They had distilled the message down to three words. Not, here's the series, here's the discipleship course, here's the five books you need to read. They had one message, and it was this. Jesus is Lord. That was it. And the people who have studied this find it absolutely amazing. And you may go, well, but hold on, let me back up. Let me, something that is parallel for us. So when they had 40 million in the Roman Empire and 20 million of them were Christians, guess what they did? They got a man in the White House named Constantine because now they had a voting block and a moral majority. And I'm not against voting your Christian values. I think if you've been here long enough, you know. Please listen to my sermon, the third or fourth week in October. I laid it on the line. So don't accuse me of not caring about politics. I'm an informed voter. I'm a very informed voter. But isn't it something? If you understand the, the impact Constantine had on the church, what did he do? He started taking tax dollars and building buildings. And it killed the momentum of the church. Because now the church had a place. They had arrived. And look. Look how inept 
and how it slowed the message. Jesus is Lord. You go, well, that was, a, that was the first century. And that's how it happened. That's like the book of Acts. And, you know, that was for that day. That's not for today. Well, let me tell you about what happened in China. In 1950, you know, if you, please, don't go, well, they're in the Bible. That stuff happens in the Bible. No. They, listen, they went from 25,000 believers to 20 million, and, and they were persecuted. Half of them had been martyred. They were persecuted. They were part of an illegal underground religion. They had no formal training. They had no seeker-sensitive services. And they had no buildings, no, no Bible. No Bible. But they had a message. They were canonizing the scripture in those years. Wow. Now, look. Let's, let's look at the last century, 1950 in China. In 1950 in China, there were 2 million Christians when the Mao regime came on. And if you know what happened for the next 20 to 25 years, listen to me. You want to talk about systemic? They systematically eradicated or tried to eradicate the Christian faith. 1950. When the, I'm going to skip over some of this stuff, but when, are you trying, 1950, 2 million Christians in China, Mao regime starts and they, they, they kill every pastor and they imprison or torture the second and third level leaders of, in the Christian faith. And then in the early 70s when the, the bamboo curtain, the so-called bamboo curtain came down, they let leaders from the Western world go and they thought, we're going to have to restart Christianity. And 20 years later, there weren't 2 million believers. You know how many there were? 60 million Christians in China. And in the big bad China, now today there's 120 million believers. Why? Because the lay people who weren't professional, hadn't been to seminary, didn't know how to teach all about prosperity and eschatology and all these other la-la-la. All they knew to do was call people to take up a cross and follow Jesus because he is Lord. 20 million, 120 million, I'm sorry, 2 million to 120 million. This is astonishing. In Acts, the Bible says, everyone was filled with awe. Brothers and sisters, you don't need me to tell you this, but let me say it. There is a massive cultural historic epoch, a shift taking place that if the Lord tarries for years, they will read and write about what's happening. And I think in the years to come, the things that will come out about this virus, its origin, the political stuff, and all of the trafficking issues, the things that are going to come out are going to astound people. We're in an epoch. There's a massive shift, so much so that many spiritual leaders are completely disoriented. Our cheap grace 
shallow discipleship in the church is being exposed to. Not here. We're not going to let it. If you come back two weeks to this church, you're probably ready to sign up and take a cross. I have the ministry of Jesus right now. Jesus was always paring it down. Jesus was always challenging people. I'm challenging you to live the real cross life. This is cross training for us to step up. Jesus is the one who said, would receive power to be my witnesses. That one, in Revelation, the scripture says in verse 12, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 11, they triumphed over him. Who is him? The verse before it says, he, Satan, accuses the brethren, the saints, both day and night before God. Anybody ever felt like that's what he, he just overwhelms you, just accuses, 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 accuses. May not even be true, which is what we're seeing a lot. You get accused of something you're not even guilty of. That's what Satan does. And verse 12, or verse 11 says, here's how they overcame him. By the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And we stop there. And by living this way, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You know what, brothers and sisters? Oh, Jesus, help us. Are you ready to live? Then you must die. How many of you know, how many of you remember the moment where you came to and you said, I've had enough. I'm tired of doing it my way. Anybody remember the freedom of you just going? And, and the moment you said, all right, Lord, I surrender. And there was like divine life in your lungs. And you look back on it, and you may be here today going, that dude is crazy. Yes, I am. I'm also a dead crazy. I don't care what you think. And hear me, you might be the dead one. Because if you haven't received Jesus, you don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know what I'm talking about. But you will never talk me out of believing firmly the stuff I'm saying this morning. Anybody else identify with your pastor this morning? So, what have I said today? I didn't give you five points. I'm gonna just, we're gonna rehearse them and here's what I've said. Number one, we don't have any power to be biblical Christians. Number two, we haven't taken up our cross daily. Some of us never have taken it up. We were taught poorly, and that's why. Number three, when I am crucified with Christ, I no longer live. He lives the Christian life in me. Number four, when I am crucified with Christ, I understand the daily reality of the resurrection, and I have no fear of death. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Number five, when Christ lives in me, I have the power to be an effective witness. Hallelujah. All right, y'all know what this means right here. I'm almost finished. When you, the reason I can't preach 20 minute sermons is when I, like even what I've just said, the pictures of dying to live in the Bible 
are, are from Genesis to Revelations. And I'm not talking to you about dying. I'm talking to you about living. But to live, to truly live, you have to die. There's so many great pictures, and I'll just, the one I want to pick out this morning to close with is, is the story of Daniel. I don't have time to do it justice, but in Daniel chapter 1, the three Hebrew children and Daniel had been taken to Baghdad. And they were being, listen to me, in mind engineered, reprogrammed, which is what's happening to our kids. In Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, the Bible says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's meat and the king's drink. His parents, when they did their family devotions from the book of Leviticus, he learned, I can't eat that stuff. I can't drink that stuff. And so, you're talking about a liminal moment, Daniel said, we, we, we can't do that. And the, the guy who was in charge of their mind engineering program goes, no, you have to. He said, no, no, we're going to just bring us vegetable and water. And the guy said, when the king sees you weak and frail, he'll have me, my head on the platter. And Daniel said, all right, let's strike a deal. Let's try it for 10 days. Just try it for 10 days. Y'all know the story. The liminal, they experienced communitas 10 days later. The Bible says they were 10 times smarter stronger than everybody who'd been eaten from the king's table. There's a great sermon on compromise right there. Compromise is not all it's cracked up to be. And when they said, we're not going to compromise. So the next chapter, the king has a dream and it concerns him. And he calls all of his palm readers in and he says, I, I need some help. I need you to help me interpret the dream. And they go, okay, king. Tell us your dream and we'll interpret it. He goes, you're trying to manipulate me. You tell me my dream. He, he killed them. And then somebody said, there's these Hebrew guys that they're able to interpret dreams. They bring Daniel. And, and listen, the dream that Daniel interpreted has to do with prophecy of what's happening right now. And he interprets the dream. And then the king goes, oh my goodness. Long live, and I mean, just amazing breakthrough. The next chapter, you would think, okay, whew, we got through COVID. We got through the next chapter. The king goes, you know what? Uh, we, we were going to build this big false god, this idol. And um, they came out and explained. Now, when you hear the music praying, uh, playing, I want everybody to bow. And y'all know the story. They started playing the music, and everybody bowed except for Daniel and the three Hebrew children. The three Hebrew children. You know, when everybody else is bowing, it's a good indication that you ought to be standing. When everybody else is standing, it might be an indication you need to be bowing. There's a, I'm saying a lot, and I don't have time to park and explain it. So they stick out like a sore thumb. And then the king brings them in, and he wants to help them. He likes these people. They've got favor with him. And he says, I don't think y'all, I don't think you fully understood the rules of engagement here. When the music starts playing, you're supposed to bow. And they, 
they, they're sitting there and their body language had to be going, no, King, we understand. We're just not going to bow. Liminal. Wait, what? No, we can't bow for the same reason we, we can't bow. Well, if you're not going to bow, then you're going, and, and then he said, I'm gonna throw you in this fire pit. And he, said, he, he ordered, heat it up seven times hotter. And they said, King, our God is able to save us in the fire. They didn't say from the fire, they said in the fire. And then they said, but even if he doesn't, oh, I love that. Even if he doesn't, we're still not gonna bow. Are y'all out there? Is anybody ready to run through that wall right there? They sent him back out, played the music. They didn't bow. They brought him in, threw him in the fire. The king goes over to check on him. Those poor boys, I tried to. We threw three of them in there, didn't we? Look at there. Wait. One, two, three. I thought I told you to throw three of them. I did throw three of them. Well, there. And the fourth one, he looks like the son of God. Go get them. They bring them out. And the Bible says some going in, hear me somebody. The men going to get them lose their life. The fire is so hot. Brings them out. And the Bible says not a hair on their bodies was singed. And they didn't even smell like smoke. Mm. We're in a Daniel day. We're in a Babylon. We're in an upside down world. And everybody's bowing, but we can't. And you may go, wow, great. I'm not going to bow because God's going to save me from the fire. You got me wrong. You need to hit rewind and listen to the last five minutes. It's the faith that says, you can't kill me. I'm already dead. The God we serve can save us in the fire. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. Oh, God, fill us with that kind of biblical courage. I know I'm preaching like an 85-year-old man. We need some good old-fashioned Bible preaching. And I'm sorry, not sorry. Because it's what we need. I'm asking you to want the cross. Want it. Don't tolerate it. Don't try and get in the side door. I'm asking you to embrace the cross, to want it. I'm getting ready to close. The Lord showed me how to close this. I've never done this on a Sunday morning. And this is going to stretch you. And I'm going to ask you guys to just play as you are softly, Glenn. I'm going to count to three in just a minute and I'm asking every believer, I don't care how long you've served the Lord, you may not even be a believer and you're standing, you're going to stand in just a second and make a confession and here's what I want you to do if you want the cross, I want you 
to stand up on your feet and say this, I want the cross. And if you're on the main floor, I want them in the balcony to hear you. And don't, don't coattail and just blend in. Don't do it. And if you're in the balcony and you want the cross, when you stand up, I want to be able to hear you. Y'all up for this? Lord, we embrace liminal risk, courage. We embrace the cross. It's all up to you. We are crucified with Christ. We no longer live. The life we live in the body, we live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. I pray that you would give spiritual and revelation for men and women to embrace the simplicity of the gospel that says Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross and he lives, ever lives to intercede for us. Help us in this room, Lord, to begin to understand and experience the power of the resurrection. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, convict hearts. Lord, make us, make us courageous, difference makers, world changers. That church in 2021 that reminds the world of the church. The book of Acts. If you're ready and you want the cross, I want you to stand out, fill up your lungs, get a good breath of fresh air. One, two, three. if ever how you're comfortable if you just lift your hands as you surrender to him fill us with your spirit Lord use us for your glory we praise you Father yes. we praise you Father I just speak to you that person you've tried for decades to forgive there's resurrection life and grace and the ability to forgive because he lives in you. You're going to make it. You've struggled with this sin and that thing for decades. And the root of it is how you were treated or mistreated by your father. And the Lord now releases in you resurrection power to overcome. That sickness that keeps you up at night. Resurrection power released in you according to God's word and for his glory in the name of Jesus. That anxiety and fear and worry. Come on, believe again, trust again, hope again. In the name of Jesus, that oppression and that dependency on those things and that drug that has helped you. In the name of Jesus, resurrection power. Glory to your name, Jesus. Yes. Glory. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, power on this last Sunday in January released in this place because we've embraced 
the Friday, Good Friday cross in the name of Jesus. Glory to your name, Jesus. Come on, let the people of God, come on, praise the name of the Lord, our God. We praise you, Lord. Glory to your name, Jesus. Glory to your name, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. I'm going to let y'all go. I don't want to. I want you to sit down and me move on into the next sermon. But you, you said, I want the cross. I'm going to let you go. Man, revival, revival, revival. Faith, the whole world's wrong side up. Acts 17 says, these men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. That's us. We are now on the scene embracing the cross. I love you, Restoration Church. It's, it's such a joy to walk with you in this crazy time. You have been so, thank you, Enoch. You have, your encouragement, your wonderful messages, the ladies in here like a bunch of angels yesterday yes. singing and your your kindness and encouraging Candace and, and thanking her. We're living a dream. I told Lou and, and I told Dean, if y'all don't pinch me, I won't pinch you. We're living a dream. Are y'all out there? That's the abundant life. We are living a dream. Woo! Praise you, Lord. And now may... The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious unto you. Give you peace. May he look upon you, his countenance look upon you. And may he give you eternal, everlasting peace and blessing because you are the sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name, just say, I receive it. And listen, may, listen. May his blessing surprise you this week. May his blessing overwhelm you and catch you, even you, Mr. Reserved, catch you off guard. How many of you received that for your husband? Because he needs it. Amen. We love you. Have a great afternoon. Enjoy your people groups this, after, this evening.